Justice League Detroit Hot Lockin' Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the Justice League of America team from 1984 through 1987 by Jerry Conway and Chuck Patton during an era affectionately known as Justice League Detroit. Featuring the first replacement Justice League, introducing new heroes Vibe, Vixen, Gypsy, Steel, to mainstays Aquaman, Elongated Man, Martian Manhunter, and Zatanna. We'll be going issue by issue in release order as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. This episode, Justice League of America number 228, 229, and 230. Cover dated July through September 1984. War of the Worlds 1984. And welcome to the inaugural episode of Justice League Detroit, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am one of your co-hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and today my co-host is an old friend of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and by friend I mean someone that I really can't stand, but this individual is legendary for his written feedback he leaves on various podcasts. Some might even refer to his comments as uh, slices of his manifesto. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome to the embassy the man who put the crease in the Rolled Spine Network, Mr. Diablo Frank. How you doing, buddy? Good to be here, Shag. Back in the day, in the 90s, during the big comic book boom, he, he worked in a comic book shop. He's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of major and minor comic book publishers that consistently uh, astounds me. He writes uh, six, yes, count them, six different comic book blogs, because apparently he can't sleep. Uh, he can crank out something like 20,000 words in like no time flat. I'll, I'll give him an idea, and blah! Suddenly it's like five pages long. It's amazing. Uh, he was one of the inspirations for me, personally, to uh, help to start creating the Firestorm fan site, and uh, he's participated in a number of blogging crossovers, and he's been a huge supporter of the Fire and Water podcast, and has been our most prolific commenter. So, folks, um, I'd like to introduce you to the man who is never afraid to speak his mind, and for you expert, for you people looking for an expert in DC bloodlines, here's your man, Diablo Frank. Appreciate you giving me a shout out, and then I have to pay it forward to Rob because Rob was the reason why I started the Martian Manhunter blog. Back in the late 90s, I had a fan site on Web TV, which is a story unto itself, and I'd let that uh, late follow for about five years. And then I started looking at Rob's blog, and I was like, hey, I could do that. I'm glad to be here, and I hope that I don't befoul it for your normal fans who are probably going to get sick of my voice by the time this show is over with. Frank, why don't you tell the folks at home uh, about your sad, uh, sad addiction um, and what you do with your computer? You had already threatened me that I had to speak about each of my blogs. I'm going to try to knock those out as quickly as possible. <laughs> Started it with the Martian Manhunter blog. It's called the Idlehead of Diablo. It's called that because I didn't want to have to be the guy who did all things Martian Manhunter. I didn't want to be to the Martian Manhunter what Rob is to Aquaman, what you are to Firestorm. But since nobody else wants the role, I'm kind of stuck in it. But with me, even though I was familiar with the Martian Manhunter character for years, and I had an enjoyment of that character, I didn't really become a hardcore fan until the late 90s as an adult. So I kind of come at it at a more critical perspective, I think, on my character. I tend to knock the Martian Manhunter more than you guys will knock your characters. So I kind of wanted to have, it's not a shrine, it's the Idlehead, it's named after a Martian Manhunter villain, so I wanted to have the opportunity to both applaud and criticize the Manhunter and his creators and everything else about him because there's a lot there to make fun of. Now, the second blog that I came up with was Justice League Detroit. I did not create a Justice League Detroit blog on purpose. I have to put that out there. Even though I'm a defender of that team, I wouldn't have done that on intentionally. What had happened was because I had the, the Marshman Hunter site back in the late 90s, Web TV was a very limited interface with the internet and Basically, I could only get four pages done before I'd run out of space on a website, on a, at a web address, and I had to create a whole new site to continue. So that's how I was used to constructing the site. So I thought, okay, well, I'll create this Justice League Detroit blog, just like I did with Web TV, and I'll put all the Justice League Detroit stuff there, not realizing you have things like links now, and, and it would be a lot easier to have done that. So I created the blog, and then it was just a sophistical thing. It's like, okay, well, it exists. I better go ahead and keep contributing to it. And even though I, I really like certain characters, there are other characters that, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you're a bigger fan of Vibe than I could ever possibly be. I love uh, me some Vibe, ladies and uh, gentlemen. That is not a joke. Yeah, I'm trying to keep it clean. So I enjoy a lot of those characters. After the Just League Detroit blog, I had the Adam blog. That blog exists because... Just uh, say it. It's just for Shag. Really. 
<laughs> well, I'd actually, I'd wanted to do a crossover a couple of years ago, and I wanted the Tiny Titan blog, which I was a, a great fan of, to continue in some fashion. And Damien Mafai, the guy who was running that blog, had retired from blogging, so it was a way of trying to bring him back or to bring Adam Fandom back. There isn't a lot of Adam Fandom out there, so then I tried to add some Captain Adam Fandom. So that's Power of the Atom, and it's mostly related to the Ray Palmer Adam and to Captain Adam. <laughs> Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman. It has a decent little following. I could easily do a daily Wonder Woman blog. I love that character so much, and it's a it's a love that goes back to childhood in the way that Firestorm and Aquaman does for you guys. It's just that there's already so many Wonder Woman fans out there doing so many wonderful things, no pun intended. You don't really need me out there doing a daily Wonder Woman blog the way that you need me out there doing a Marsh Manor blog, because, again, nobody else is going to do that. And then, finally, I did DC Bloodlines, in part because I had to stop myself. I had to find a way of stopping myself from creating any more DC blogs. So DC Bloodlines is the place where I stick everything else. And if I ever collapse any of the other blogs, I'll probably collapse there. I'd also had these grand visions of doing like a comic alliance of bloggers there and making it a clubhouse for all of us to write about all of our other characters. And that never really happened. So now, again, it's sort of like Just League of Tour. There's a vestigial quality. There's a couple other guys that kind of knock out stuff every now and again. And then whatever the hell else I feel like throwing dumping up there, that goes on DC Bloodlines. And then finally, to wrap this up, and I'm, I apologize apologize to your listeners because I know they're already sick of hearing about this. But I have one other blog called NURG. Uh, that's N-U-R-G-H. It's an onomatopoeia. And basically, any other thing that I want to deal with on the planet goes into NURG. And not a lot's been going there. mostly been reviews, but just whatever I feel like doing. I'll have a Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord of the Flies. God, I hate Lord of the Rings. I'll have a Lord of the Flies character <laughs> between the movies and the book. And I'll do movie reviews, comic reviews, all that kind of stuff, whatever. Occasionally, I'll delve into softcore videos, which Shag is quite a connoisseur of, from what I understand. You know and right. uh, there's our blogs. Today, our guest to help us discuss Justice League Detroit is none other than the comic book writer and co-creator of that entire era, Mr. Jerry Conway. Now, for me, uh, some of you might know that I spend most of my time online promoting the character of Firestorm the Nuclear Man. Now, Jerry Conway is the co-creator of Firestorm, so through my Firestorm activities there, I was fortunate enough to interview Jerry like, I don't know, five or six times over the past decade or so. Jerry's always been wonderful to chat with and an incredible guest. Now, this Justice League Detroit discussion we had was an absolute blast, and I I think you're really going to enjoy it. Now, before we get to the interview, we do need to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. This time out, I want to pick something that has some Jerry Conway written Justice League issues in it, so I picked Justice League of America, a celebration of 60 years. Now, this is a 448-page hardcover, and it collects a whole bunch of issues from the Justice League history, including the amazing Justice League of America, issue number 200, which is written by Jerry, which is phenomenal, and Justice League of America, annual number two, which is the very first issue in the Justice League Detroit era. So altogether, this book is, uh, as I said, 448 pages. It normally retails for $29.99, but you can get it for 42% off, so only $17.39. That's a heck of a deal, folks. So for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. We also need to take a second to thank you folks at home who support our Patreon, because running the Firewater Podcast Network is challenging with so many shows and all the online hosting and fees and all the various services that it requires. So when we started the Patreon a while back, you guys really stepped up, and we sincerely appreciate it. And without you, we wouldn't still be on the air. So our thanks to all of you who support the Patreon. If you're enjoying shows, please consider supporting us by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. And at certain tiers, you get thanked on your show of choice, just like these folks. So our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, Danny Dowell, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker-Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Mike Zemkowski, Roger Preeb, Rudy Gastillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Now, if you want to join the conversation, get out on the social medias and share your thoughts. And feel free to use our hashtag FWPodcast. Also, go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. Leave your comments there in the show post. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the Justice League Detroit era or on this interview with Jerry. It's somewhat ironic that Jerry Conway is our first guest on the Pop Lockin' cast. Jerry was a guest at Houston's Comic Palooza pre-COVID before that show completely went down the tubes. The way that show's run now, they'd never invite a classic comics writer like him. I mean, it's called Comic Palooza. 
and yet goes out of its way to not invite anyone involved with the comic book industry. In fact, I was just at a small show this past weekend when I overheard two retailers complaining that they couldn't make any money at the show because it all went to Celebapalooza. Anyway, I don't like conducting interviews over the internet. It's stressful enough to reach out to creators I admire without fretting over getting ghosted or getting the time zone wrong or other technical difficulties. Once I screw up the courage to talk to someone in person, it's sink or swim. And almost everybody I've asked has said yes. Jerry Conway is one of the two guys who declined. Conway is open about his leftist politics and despair over the alt-right, co-opting the Punisher's skull like it was Pepe the Frog. Even though I share his politics, there's no way for him to know that without vetting me. He did offer to set something up over the internet, but I never followed up for the reasons I already gave. And then I proposed this podcast to you last year when you'd scheduled but not conducted this interview. And you were rightly concerned that I'd say something disparaging of the Detroit run that would put the kibosh on the interview. I personally love the Detroit League and stand up. I will always stand up for them. I, uh, I mentioned what my first issues of Justice League were, but all, they immediately preceded me jiving in and reading the Detroit League on a monthly basis as it was coming out. And uh, I, I still love that team. And I agree, there's, there's certainly some storylines that didn't go the direction they could have. But I like, I like the concept. I even like the characters. You know, it, ridiculous as Vibe is, there, there's a nugget of a character there that could even be salvaged today, I think. Except for his name, his powers, and his personality. <laughs> I think you can take... I think you could... Down the street in my vest And you be thinking that I know I'm the best And you be wondering how I do that stuff with my hands I'll be busting all the criminals' heads And cleaning up the streets all over Detroit Then look out, Mama Cita But now, with JLI Podcast experiencing breakdowns, you are terrified of the prospect of no longer having a Just League podcast to edit. With the Podlock and Cast alternating every fortnight with JLI, you'll now have three league books to cover each month. This is sort of the zero episode to set up the change in status quo. And then we pick up in May with the episode 0B, covering where Superman and company were off to, before starting issue-by-issue coverage with the annual in June. And of course, we have long-range plans. Once JLI Bwahaha Podcast ends, this show's engineer, Rob Kelly, will co-host Justice League's Spectacular Podcast, longing as he was for the more serious stories of Dan and Jurgens and company in Justice League America and Justice League International. And we're getting an early start so that I can transition to hosting the Justice League Task Force Impossible Mission Cast, while Vera Wilde makes the return to podcasting with the Justice League Extreme Cast. With these and even more shows in the works, I'm proud to announce to our listeners that they can look forward to Shag never going another day without working on some form of Justice League podcast for the rest of his natural life. Okay, with those items out of the way, let's get down to Justice League Detroit and our discussion with Jerry Conway. In a segment I like to call... Monitor Duty. If you're unfamiliar with Jerry Conway, he was one of the most prolific comic writers of the 1970s and 80s. He's written a large number of big-name characters for both Marvel and DC, with significant runs on Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Thor, Superman, Detective Comics, Justice League of America, and just pretty much everybody. He's probably best known for co-creating Marvel's vigilante The Punisher and scripting the death of Gwen Stacy during his long run on The Amazing Spider-Man. He's also scripted the first major modern-day intercompany crossover, Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man, which, of course, was in the beloved Treasury format. In 1978, Jerry became the regular writer on Justice League of America. He wrote the series for about eight years across a hundred issues or so. Many of the famous Bronze Age JLA stories that you remember were written by Jerry. For his last two years on the book, he changed the status quo of the team, and along with artist Chuck Patton, they created the version of the team known as Justice League Detroit. Jerry left the Justice League of America series with issue 255. When he left, they brought in another 
writer, some guy named J.M.D. Mateus. I don't know. I've never heard of him. Anyway, uh, this guy, J.M.D. Mateus, finished up the last six issues of JLA. Now, after leaving comics, Jerry went on to Hollywood with a very successful career writing and producing TV series such as Law & Order, Diagnosis Murder, Father Dowling Mysteries, and many more. So, uh, there's a lot more to know about Jerry Conway, obviously, folks, but I think I'm just going to let him speak for himself. There was a confluence between DC's desire to somehow up sales on that book to levels, you know, similar to Teen Titans and my own desire to come up with a, a new creative approach that would allow me to focus on characters uh, and character stories rather than just, you know, big adventures, which I was perfectly happy doing, but, you know, uh, was not getting the, uh, the kind of response that the management wanted from the readership. So that was really the motivation. Well, I find it kind of interesting. To me, it's it's a little bit like a snake eating its own tail because, you know, because <laughs> here you are, you know, you created Firestorm, which was, sorry, folks, I'm a Firestorm guy. I'm going to have to mention it. Anyway, you create Firestorm, this Marvel character basically at DC who brings this younger dynamic to the Justice League. Uh, and then, you know, you're doing this with George Perez and George Perez is yeah. doing the Firestorm backups as well in The Flash and these become very popular. Then George Perez moves over to Teen Titans with Marv Wolfman, new Teen Titans, very modeled a lot of ways on a Marvel superhero team. Mm-hmm. Then the JLA starts chasing the Teen Titans. Who I, I feel like it kind of went secular with you introducing Firestorm to the team with George Perez, and that kind of ends up you guys are all chasing it yourselves, it feels like. Well, yeah, I mean, and one of the problems at DC was that they really didn't know what they were doing editorially mm. um, and, and have never, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and that's not not necessarily because they're they're not smart people. It's just that because of the way that, that their company is set up, with a variety, even now with a variety of fiefdoms, they don't have a cohesive vision of what a good comic book should be. Hmm. You know, and Marvel has always had, uh, since the days of Stan and Jack, a template, you know, and, and a template is really important. It's something that you can use as a guide for the direction you want to move. Mm-hmm. And you can move away from that, you know, as a, as a conscious decision because you have the template to fall back on, or you can move towards it. But with DC, there were so many different theories. Every editor had a theory of what sold. And as a result, you know, you had all these different uh, directions and no template. In recent years, when Jeff Johns was the top writer at, at DC, I felt that they were moving towards a point where they had a template Mm -hmm. because what Jeff was doing was something that was repeatable and was simple enough that you could point to it and say, okay, let's do stories that fit into this kind of template. And as a result, you could have a fairly consistent, if, if the editorial staff was willing to actually follow it, you could have a consistent type of DC story and it would have been effective, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have that. So when I was doing my book, I was trying to do my take on a on a Marvel template. Uh, when Marv Wolfman was doing his book, he was doing his take on a Marvel template. And because Marv ended up working on a book with George Perez that that hit the zeitgeist, you know, and, and right. it was kind of an easy zeitgeist to aim for, which is teen superheroes, because what was the most popular book in comics at that time? X-Men, you know, which exactly. was teen superheroes. And, but then you have the, the editorial staff going, well, wait a minute, we have other team books and they're not doing as well as this Teen Titans book. So clearly something must be wrong. But that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> what the case is, is that you've got a perfect match between subject matter and audience interest, which is Teen Titans. And that's a unique book that you can't really replicate. It's not a template that you can then take and, and do all your other books in the same format. So I was faced with this, you know, kind of round robin, as you say, this eating its own tail situation. And rather than leave the book, which I really didn't want to do, I said, hey, why don't we try to replicate that to some extent? And it'll give me the opportunity, you know, to develop these characters that that fell by the wayside, you know, like Vixen and Steel uh, during the DC implosion and, uh, you know, create some new characters who might have their own future. Now, looking at the other characters on the Justice League Detroit team, you know, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, Zatanna, Elongated Man, those were the, the, the old guard that you chose. And I know you were trying to avoid using characters that had their own ongoing title, as you said. So what made you choose those four characters over characters such as Green Arrow or Black Canary or Red Tornado or Hawkman or Adam? 
Well, part of it was personal preference, you mm-hmm. know, where characters who I, I wanted to write, you know, okay. uh, uh, I've always been a Martian Manhunter fan. I, since reading Secret Origins, the, the first Secret Origins giant size comic, which uh, I had never heard of Martian Manhunter, you know, and then I read this origin story and it had so much pathos and so much interest. So I was like, oh, wow, I want to want to read more about this and realize, oh, this is the character that's in Justice League, <laughs> 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 you know, who who was not interesting, you know, right. the, the Martian Manhunter in the Justice League always seemed to me to be like, why is he there? You know, he, he, he Gardner did, had no idea what that character could be. But the character that was presented in the Secret Origin story had such pathos. I thought, I got to write that guy someday. You know, I wanted to write, write him. And Aquaman... I'd been a fan of that character when he was rebooted by Steve Skates and Jim Aparo uh, mm. under Dick Giordano with uh, a terrific continuing uh, story line that's been reprinted recently, you know, in, in uh, some omnibus editions. Yeah, The Search for um, Mara is great. Yeah, just great stuff. And the first time that that character was taken seriously as a an adult superhero. So I felt he and Mara and their story was interesting to me. Elongated Man, always a personal favorite. I just I just loved Ralph and Sue. And nothing has distressed me more than what what happened to uh, those characters as a result of one of the crises. Oh, oh we just pretend uh, that didn't happen, actually. Don't worry. Yeah. I, I, I just, uh, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Brad Metzger. I totally get where he was coming from, you know, and I will never forgive him. Right. <laughs> All of those things are true, you know, so uh, it's just one of those he killed Sue and uh, Ronnie Raymond in the same comic, so there you go. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and you know, uh, just a, so, such a horrible. Yeah, uh, you know, just it's all just so hard. It was just right. so also horrible. Ugh. And then Zatanna, again, another big fan favorite of mine. I, I f- fell for that character when she first appeared as a visiting character in Julie Schwartz's superhero comics, mm-hmm. you know, in that terrific little mini series of, you know, her looking for her father and encountering different ca- different superheroes along the way. And I thought, oh, she's great. I think I was the one who brought her into the Justice League. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So I just always liked her character. I liked the idea of a sorceress. A magician, you know, brings a certain power that you don't have otherwise to a group. Uh, and it, it, it just made sense to me. So it was a difference. You know, it was sort of like, who do you want to write? You know, Green Arrow and Black Canary, I liked writing them. You know, I did a couple of those series stories uh, of them. But I felt like Denny O'Neill really owned those characters mm, sure. uh, as a writer, and uh, there was nothing more I, sh- I could say about them. And Red Tornado, it felt like that would have been, I would just basically be doing the vision, okay. and I didn't really want to do that. So sure. uh, it, it just, you know, as I say, personal preference. And the idea of, uh, of Sue and Ralph to, be, to contrast with Aquaman and Mera, you know, here's a happy couple, here's an unhappy couple. <laughs> there you go. Uh, here's an alien who you know, feels alienated literally from the world. I was doing the best I could at the time. And that pretty much uh, sums it up. Well, all right, I've, I've got two quick comments. Uh, so first off, for those of you at home who may not have read the Justice League Detroit era, first thing you got to know is you may hear people say all the time that Martian Manhunter's always been the heart of the Justice League. That is not true. Not until the Justice League Detroit era. That is where Martian Manhunter truly became the heart of the Justice League. And that's all down to Jerry. Then those of you that love Sue Dibney and Justice League Europe, that is also down to Jerry making her an act active character rather than just a, a support character that Ralph mentioned once in a while. She became an active character during this era. So again, props to you. All right, folks. Well, this is the part of the show where I get to sit back, pop a cold one and relax. And, uh, something I like to call character spotlight. This is where the guest is asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue. Not really an origin recap, but more where the characters were about when, uh, in the DC Universe when this story was going on. Now that we've got your re- uh, listeners on the hook, I'm going to talk to them about Marsh Manor for a few minutes. Because it's important to know what War of the Worlds 1984 meant to the character. John Jones, Manor from Mars, created in 1955. It was a sci-fi crime strip. As we talked about before, crime was big in the 1950s. Sci-fi was never as big as people seem to think it was in comics. But it was still worth noting, and they were doing a lot of comics at that time, trying to 
to exploit, hoping for crossover appeal with the sci-fi movies of the time. For the early years, it was basically a plainclothes detective solving fairly mundane crimes using secret Martian powers. It wasn't until around 1959 that he actually began to take on the affectations of a superhero, and that was because Julius Schwartz had become known for bringing back the superhero. He had brought back the Flash, Green Lantern, and it was progressing from there. And so, looking to bring back the Justice Society, we had the Justice League. And at the time, Mort Weisinger was very possessive of Superman, and editor Jack Schiff was very possessive of Batman. So, even though people like to talk about the Magnificent Seven, really, the Justice League was five heroes. Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern. And the Martian Manhunter was in that Superman role. And when you think about how many teams were formed off the template established by the Justice League, the Martian Manhunter was one of your first strong guys. He was your Superman guy who you could rely upon if nobody else could to save the day. So that really made him more of a conscious in the readers' minds. I think that he would have been very much a footnote in history had it not been for him being two-horned in the Justice League for another reason than he had a lot of powers and could stand in for Superman. But eventually, Superman and Batman did join the Justice League, and for that reason, Marshman had was slowly pushed out of the book. Marshman had also been in Detective Comics for a number of years without really significantly affecting the sales. At that time, Batman was kind of the bottom rung of the headlining DC heroes. He really wasn't selling well at all. So he decided, Julie Shorts is doing such great things with the superhero revival, let's give him the Batman books. They did that, and Marshman was shown the door. So around 1964, the Marshman is already getting pushed out of the Justice League, and now he's in a new anthology title, House of Mystery, but in retrospect, that was very much a stopgap measure because even though he got a few covers out of the deal and he was a headlining hero, he almost immediately lost that cover slot to the new feature, Dollies for Hero, which I think that was the basket in which they're putting most of their eggs. Hold, hold on one sec. He was in House yeah. of Mystery? Yeah. Was he introduced by Kane or Abel or anything like that? that or? Was House of Mystery, when it started, it was DC's watered-down, kid-friendly version of the type of stuff that EC was doing. Right. But after all the Wortham business, all the horror got shut down. So they were basically doing silly side sci-fi type stuff with it, maybe a little bit of bug-eyed monster type stuff, but there weren't any Hain and Abel. That wouldn't come in until the 70s. In fact, Hain and Abel were the guys who evicted the Marshman Hunter and Dalai for Hero from the book. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyhow, the Marshman Hunter strip, as I mentioned before, started out as sci-fi crime, progressed into superhero when that wasn't really working, and because House of Mystery already had an established format, they kind of created, recreated the strip for this new book. So the Marshman Hunter was always a Marshman Hunter. He had his sidekick, Zook, who would help him with adventures. And he had this device called the Diablo Idlehead, which I derived my, my blog's name. And what, it was basically Pandora's box. Once a month, on a full moon, it would open up, and a new monster would come out, and Zook and the Marshman Hunter would go and beat up the monster, wash, winch, repeat. You know, that was the, the series. Well, about halfway through the series, that wasn't really working out, and Dilation already come out, and that wasn't really lighting anything on fire. So I decided, okay, instead of having these kid-friendly type stories... We'll make it a little more hard edge. Spies are in. So Zook went away. Marshman had to take on a new superhero, a uh, new human identity of Marco Xavier. And he's trying to infiltrate the international crime organization called Vulture and bring down their leader, Mr. V. And the second half of the run was that material. <laughs> he was man from Uncle, too, huh? That's amazing. Basically, well, see, that's the thing is people always think that they, he was a spy. He was a spy, but he wasn't like a super spy, a government agent name Mr. Steele actually asked him to infiltrate the organization, but the organization it was just like a mafia, it was an international mafia, there wasn't which had gadgets, actually I'm full of it, it, it was a spy agency, they just didn't have an acronym everybody thinks it's V dot U dot so forth, no it's just Vulture <laughs> that's awesome so none of these format changes had worked out very well. So by 68, they kind of gave up on it. The Comic Code Authority had loosened its restrictions on horror material. So Jack Schiff was quietly retired from DC as a whole. House of Mystery was taken over by Joe Orlando. That's when Kane and Abel and all the more serious horror stuff came in. All that great Neil Adams stuff and so forth. And... Dolly Hero and John Jones were shown the door. Meanwhile, John Jones was no longer showing up in Justice League either because you had Superman. Why do you need this guy, Marshman Hunter? Especially because for some reason, Gardner Fox fixated on one power. The Marshman Hunter had super wind. He would just blow everything down or out. And it <laughs> Wait, let's go back to super wind. I like that description. Before each adventure. All right, hold on. Wait, I have to pause the show and say I think anyone who's listening to this, raise your hand if you just want us to skip Jalen entirely and just have Frank talk about 
the ridiculous history of the Martian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's ours. We don't have time for that. We, that's a multi-installment serial. I gotta say, I'm not feeling so bad about all the changes Firestorm's gone through over the format changes over the years. Now, I always thought he took it pretty hard on the chin, but man, he's a he's an amateur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Whew. deep breath. Okay. So what was interesting about all of these changes that Marshman had gone through is his original co-creator, Joe Samuelson, had left within the first few months of the strip, but new writer Jack Miller and the original artist, Joe Serta, did the strip for 13 years, almost 13 years straight, discounting the part that that Samuelson had done. So you have the same creative team, and they're not necessarily the most adept or commercially sound creative team. So... They never changed the creative team, but they changed the format over and over and over again, and nothing worked, and nobody ever thought, well, maybe, you know, I don't know if they, if they just wanted to – it was talking about the, judge, uh, the George Triska thing. Maybe it was just a matter of giving these guys work. Maybe the Marshall Manor's entire career comes down to helping Jack Miller and Joe sort of pay the rent every month. I, I kind of wonder about that. So, 68, they're both – out of work. Joe Sutter goes off and he does a bunch of work for Dell. Uh, Jack Miller kind of bounced around for a little bit, and then I think he ended up passing on in the 70s, if I recall correctly. 69, Denny O'Neill goes ahead and writes the Marshman out of the Justice League after he'd already been summarily dropped without any explanation. People kept writing in and asking, so he's like, fine, I'll tell you what happened to the Marshman Manor. He goes off to Mars. Mars has been blown up by a, a new, heretofore never mentioned, nemesis named Commander Blanks. By the way, there's also racial warfare that we've never brought up before on this planet against the Greens and the Whites. So with Mars gone, the Marshman is sent off to find his people who, there's a small rocket ship, they loaded them up with as many Martians as they could, and the Ark went off to the stars, and Marshman basically is leaving to go find his people, and they left that cliffhanger hanging for about three or four years. And then when they finally resolved it, they had a new planet, Mars 2. The Marshman was going to be the leader of the planet, and goodbye, Marshman Hunter, for the next decade and a half. We're done with you. We're tired of you. You haven't worked out. You're gone. Can, okay. we, can we officially call it Mars 2 Electric Boogaloo? Is that, is that okay? <laughs> I prefer Mars 2 The Quickening. <laughs> it, it, it was more like Mars 2 Suck Harder, honestly. Martian oh. awful. Martians are the worst alien race. If you go back to the original stories, think about it. Most alien races, they come to Earth, and they've got these great big spaceships, and they're coming to conquer us, and we're a bunch of monkeys running around. That's not what happens with Mars. What happens with Mars is that one Martian gets drawn to Earth by the superior Earthling technology through teleportation. He lands here, and he's like, oh, dang. Martians don't have rocket ships. I'm going to be here for a while. He doesn't try to reverse it. He talks about maybe he'll try to reverse it. He, he doesn't work that out for years. The Martians never get their rocket ships together. They never come to pick him up. They only manage to build that one rocket ship that they loaded everybody up on to shoot off the stars. These guys have terrible technology. And, and another thing is the Martian joins the Justice League and thanks to this retroactive commu- uh, continuity – why doesn't the Marshman Hunter gather the Justice League and go and beat Commander Blanks and stop Mars from getting blown up? The answer is that Martian Manor got off that stinking rock. He had no desire to go back, and he just wanted to kind of leave them to fend for themselves because they're just a terrible people. They're jerks, uh, as we'll find in the 1970s. These guys go to Mars, too, right? Well, it's a rock. Martians come to Earth, they get all these cool powers. Martians on Mars really don't have powers, and then Martians on other planets have greatly diminished powers. So obviously the thing to do is, well, you go to Earth, it's the next planet over. you got a rocket ship, point it at Earth. But these guys don't have the sense to do that, though they shoot off to another solar system. They land on this rock. There's nothing on this rock. It's just nothing but rock. And so what the Martians do is they don't build up this rock. It stays a rock the entire time Mars to exist. One of the points of the story that we're reading is that it's a rock 15 years later. They haven't done anything with it. And then they finally decide, let's go to Earth and conquer it instead of doing something with this rock. And they never had any advanced technology, so what happens is they devolve into barbarism. They're running around with swords. When they finally find inhabitants to the planet, what do they do? They decide to try to kill the inhabitants and take their stuff. One of the problems I have with the story arc is where did these guys get the ships? They had one ship. They couldn't build anything. Martians are terrible, terrible characters. They're terrible aliens. They're inferior to humans. And the whole thing with the, the Martian technology that was supposed to jazz the watchtower, I'm pretty sure Martian Manhunter just claimed Erdell's technology and said, yeah, it's Martian. <laughs> I don't think you're going to do that stuff. So, yeah, they're, they're a completely bogus race. Are you, um, are, you the, are you on the verge of, like, hyperventilating or something? I don't think you breathe through that whole thing, brother. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, anyhow, 
point, getting back onto the point, though. Okay, for my what was the show again, about? What, is, what, are, what are we talking I about? I think we were talking about Green Arrow or something. Okay. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Throughout the 1970s, the Marshman Hunter made only a handful of appearances. You could probably count them on your fingers, maybe a few toes. And each time he made an appearance, there were certain consistencies. One is that he would usually be disoriented in some way because he just had his ass handed to him. So he shows up and he wanders around and some other hero finds him. And he's like, oh, help me, other heroes. And so the other heroes would go and they'd beat the guy who beat up the Martian Manhunter. And the Martian Manhunter would say, thank you, and then go back to misleading the Martian people on Mars, too. He couldn't solve any of his own problems. He was consistently mentally unbalanced, physically weakened usually. You know, even in the start of this story arc, what happens is he lands and he's, he's supposed to be, you know, starving and he hasn't slept for days and that's why he's running around and hitting everybody. So it, that's very consistent with what he'd done throughout the 1970s. He runs up to guys and he says, hey, help me. And then they help him and then the heroes go away because they've got better things to do than hang out on Mars too, unlike John Jones. Uh, he had that serial in 1977. All he did was running around, hit other superheroes, and in the end you find out that he'd been misled by one of his fellow Martians. So he's just a jerk. He's a jerk and he's an Nimrod, and that's where we pick up with him in the 1980s. One of the reasons why I'm telling you guys all this, and I'm sorry for, for belaboring the point, but there were two writers that would have potentially saved Martian Manhunter from becoming... Uh, again, once again, a footnote in comic book history. One of those writers is Jerry Conway. In, uh, <laughs> there we go, getting in there. In 1984, they were planning a miniseries that was going to feature the Martian Manhunter as a supporting character. They were going to come up with a new, younger, leaner Martian who was going to have his own series. John was just going to be a supporting player. And they were going to play with a lot of the continuity that had been established by Denny O'Neill and other writers from the 60s through the 70s, all that bad material that I just talked about. Well, Jerry Conway in the midst of that miniseries, decided, well, you know what, I want to use the Marsh Manor for some stuff. So he basically blocked the use of the Martians for this specific story arc, and that's what prevented Jim, son of Saturn, from being Jim, son of Mars, and Marsh Manor being consigned to being a, a supporting character in Jim's book. Oh, uh, wow. I had no so, idea. Indeed, indeed. And actually... Yeah. It's funny because like, there are only two people that know anything about Martian continuity besides me, apparently. Jerry Conway and Greg Potter, the writer of the Jim miniseries. And all that stuff ends up in the Jim miniseries. And it's not necessarily great material. It's an extremely depressing, jacked-up series with another weak protagonist. So I don't think that series would have helped the Martian Manhunter's case any. So to a large degree, Jerry Conway saved him from the fate that would have been Jim, son of Saturn. Or Jim, son of Mars, I should say. Hmm. Now... What you've got in this book is he actually goes to the trouble of reading those older Daniel O'Neill stories. The Marshal, the main villain of this piece, is kind of a reconfiguration of Commander Blanks. He's definitely a callback to that character. Beljuz, who had appeared in one story, goes from being a one-story villainous to a, a supporting character and, and giving validity to those stories. Plus, I think Beljuz is hot, and I just wish they hadn't tried to color her like Jarella in this story, because she's actually got this really lovely lavender hair. It's just an extremely important story for John Jones, and it's all because of Jerry Conway, because you, like, if you open each of these issues, most of the issues start with a superpowers ad in the inside front cover. And how many people do you know who became familiar with the Marsh Manor through the superpowers toy? And the only reason he got that toy is by joining the Justice League around this time period. That would have happened otherwise. So right there, that in and of itself, there's your gateway to Marsh Manor fandom from the 80s onward. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> I think saying Martian Manhunter fandom, though, implies um, yeah, more, I know. more than two guys. So I don't know that that's really fair. Yeah. But anyway. It's true. This is true. You speak. Okay. Now that I've bored everybody, let's get to the issue at hand. I found all that fascinating, personally. But we are going to move in now to the issue we are going to talk about. Justice League of America number 28. Cover date July 1984. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on sale date of April 5th, 1984. Cover price is 75 cents. Cover art is by Chuck Patton and Dick Giordano, featuring Martian Manhunter coming out of water, smacking Aquaman as the rest of the Justice League looks on. The Martian Manhunter is back with a lot of angry Martians on his tail. War of the World was by Jerry Conway, George Kuska, and Alex Nino. In 1961, Vostok 1 orbited the Earth. Dying Mars took no notice. In 1963, Project Gemini yielded the first Terran spacewalk. On Mars, a grim decision is taken, and a once great race prepares for a strange exodus. In 1969, Apollo 11 landed on Earth's moon. On Mars, as before, no notice is taken, for now, no one is there. In 1976, Viking 1 lands on the Red Planet. 
confirming some scientists' fear that Mars is, indeed, a dead world. In 1984, an abandoned and neglected Viking 2 found new life on Mars, or rather was found by it. After an effective two-page build-up, the action began, as John Jones piloted a wounded spacecraft toward the blue world that was once his home away from home. Two of the Marshall's hunters were in pursuit, but by seeming sheer will, Jones managed to maintain his lead. The hunter commander demanded that the traitor be stopped before reaching his allies, and despite the love they once shared, Hunter 2 privately vowed to kill John Jones to this end. Aboard the Just League of America satellite, Aquaman was the first to detect the approaching vessels. Black Canary, Green Arrow, Red Tornado, Elongated Man, Firestorm, Zatanna, Hawkman, and Hawkgirl were swiftly called into action. Barely missing collision, the JLA followed the invaders down to Terra Nasso Firma. His ship destroyed by Air Force missiles, John Jones splashed down in the waters near the Statue of Liberty. Aquaman dove in to investigate, but was brushed off by an escaping figure from the wreckage that he was able to recognize through telepathy and a scant vision before it turned invisible. An old friend who seems to have turned into an enemy. The League had presumed that he was still with his fellow survivors in another star system, resettled on Mars 2. Speeding away on some unknown mission, an overzealous nuclear man tried to steam the Martian out of the water, only to be chastised by the fairer winged wonder. John's our friend, Firestorm. Something's driven him to act desperately, but he's still our friend. Hawkman surmised that he had been running for days without food or sleep, and even without the hot foot, Jones soon collapsed into Shiera Hall's arms. Jones was taken to the United Nations to recover, where the disbelieving UN Secretary heard the League's tales of Commander Blanks, causing the blue flame of Mars to rage into an inferno that rendered the world uninhabitable. Jones explained that three Terran weeks earlier, he had determined the true fervor of the Red Brotherhood, a nativist, fascist collective of mostly young militiamen seeking to abandon their subsistence existence on Mars 2 to return to their home planet. Months earlier, a masked ally named Challenger had found and destroyed the Viking 2 rover on a pilgrimage to Mars, and the charismatic, genetically engineered militant leader, the Marshal, would use his intrusion as pretext for an invasion of Earth. So convincing was he that even Jean's lover, Jean, had her simmering anger weaponized towards a successful takeover bid against the current government within the week. Forewarned by his investigation, the sleuth from outer space evaded the imprisonment and death of the fellow resistors, and managed to escape in a scout ship. Shortly after recounting these events, a warship appeared outside United Nations Plaza, and the Challenger emerged. This being offered to accept humanity's surrender, so that they could be interned in camps for a single generation as a sign of Martian mercy. The Manhunter from Mars called out this plot of slow genocide, but was in no condition to resist at that time, as Earth was afforded one day to answer to the Marshal's terms. I've often written the DC Comics House ads featuring the covers to this debut, and the final issue of this arc were among my first, if not the first, exposure to the Alien Atlas. You should have no doubt that I wish the interiors matched those glorious Martian images rendered by Patton and Giordano. But I was still happy with the initial chapter of the tale that, as announced on the cover, brought the Manhunter back to comics. I was reading some of the letters page, and it sounds like the editors did consider this, or at least the build-up to what they were about to do, a big deal. So I, I think they, they really did understand that this story's purpose was to tell why they were going to get to where they were going to be. So I think they considered it a big deal. Okay. I mean, certainly the covers... Um, I, for me, these are some of the most striking covers of this era of the JLA. I mean, I'm probably biased because it's part of when I started Crisis on Earth Prime and, and had the, that cover treatment. Well, the, the third part of this crossover, the cover treatment's very similar with the heads around it. So when I was first buying JLA comics, the first JLA comics I ever bought was the Crisis on Earth Prime. I happened to pick up this comic in the same shopping trip thinking it was part of the crossover just because of the cover treatment and uh, so then I immediately went back and picked up the other one so these are actually some of the first JLA comics I ever read after Crisis on Earth Prime and um, I don't know to me they're, they're huge and the covers are just awesome many months ago longtime listeners of the Fire and Water podcast may recall I said that the name George Tuska should never be mentioned on this show and t this is a good example as to why I couldn't stand the art in this issue drove me crazy. I mean, here you've got this amazing cover by Chuck, Chuck Patton. You've got all this great interior, um, you know, a uh, build-up and everything, but the art just is a letdown. Tell me I'm wrong here. I don't think sci-fi is actually his problem. Because if you look at the first two pages of, of the this astronaut landing on the moon, and you look at like the space shuttle entering the atmosphere and the planes and stuff, he can actually draw that kind of stuff really good. It's the superhero spandex world that he seems to really struggle with. Well, I was going to say, between this and uh, the other George Tuska issue that always sticks out in my mind is another superhero comic that was a disappointment. It was... Um, the, one of the early issues in the Firestorm Blue Devil crossover in 86, which was a, a, a big, big thing for me. I was so excited because I love this character so much. And I opened the comic, and it was George Tuska. So it's uh, I have a special resentment for him. 
<laughs> All right, folks. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right into Justice League of America, number 229, cover dated August 1984. We've got a gorgeous cover of the JLA who have had their butts handed to them, basically. On the satellite, there's this yellow-clad armored being yelling, The war begins now! And uh, he is thoroughly trumps Aquaman, Black Canary, Green Arrow, Zatanna, Elongated Man, and Firestorm. Open this sucker up, and inside you get Jerry Conway on scripts, Alan Kupperberg on pencils, and Pablo Marcos on inks. This is a combination that I'm really happy with. I'll talk about in a little bit. Probably more sore about being manhandled on the Martian Marvel's previous visit to Earth during his Jail of A tenure than because of legitimate concerns, Firestorm let Jean Jones know that he would be keeping an eye on him in the event of a double cross. If you believe that, we have nothing more to say. The Martian invaders had destroyed most of a space shuttle orbiting the planet, and the pair of heroes were dispatched to address the remains. Too weak to control the nose cone, where three surviving astronauts hid, the nuclear man cursed the Martian for imperiling them, but managed to salvage the attempt with his matter restructuring abilities. Upon return, Firestorm was still finger-pointing, and Zatanna chastised him for it. The Thanagorians vowed to stand by Earth until the end. And when the military police showed up to round up all ETs, Firestorm's defense showed that his prejudice didn't extend past Jones. Then-President Ronald Reagan apologized to Aquaman for the incident and explained the world leaders were intent on pushing back against the Martians. Both men bemoaned the unexplained absence of Green Lantern, The Flash, Wonder Woman, and Superman, a too common recent trend. Elongated Man reported that one silver lining was that he was there seeing people around the world unite as one against the extraterrestrial threat. I, I, I gotta go back to this hawk dialogue in this thing. I mean, the, the hawks are so weird in this issue. Like, they show up after, a Firestorm and Martian Manor show up after saving the space shuttle. You know, and, and Hawk Girl's like, you made it, and you didn't need our help after all. And Hawkman's like, still, I'm glad uh, we three were waiting. For what? What the hell? What? Why were you glad you were waiting? You know, you could be out helping the world, <laughs> but no, thank goodness you're here at the military base. But don't get that bit about Carter Hall watching soap operas. What in the hell was that about? Yeah, I know. I mean, they're in the middle of the, they're getting ready to have a war. You know, Aquaman's taking time for a bath and he's talking about soap operas. Like, what the heck? Where did that page come from? <laughs> now, more importantly, let's get back to how hot Zatanna was. Um, <laughs> like this page here, page eight. I mean, she is just smoking. And maybe it's because you know, she looks here just like she did when she would appear in the Blue Devil issues. Maybe that's part of where. Yes. Oh, man, it. that two-parter early in the, in, in the first year. Uh-huh. Like, she's four and five. I've had a crush on her ever since then. Mm-hmm. Now, those, interestingly enough, those were drawn by Paris Collins, not Alan Cooperberg. But, I mean, it's just, it's all right there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. He has visible loins. I'm sure that had a lot to do with a, a prepubescent mind focusing in on that particular character. She's, uh, she's got my attention, even if she is wearing a bug in her head. <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, the Hawks' ridiculous dialogue continues. They're just going on like, you know, we're, we're guests on this world, but we want you to know we'll be here by your side till the end. We'll fight and we'll win. You know, I realize that's sort of a setup later to remind us they're aliens. Aboard his warship, the Marshal expressed his confidence to his lover and confidant, Belle Jouz, in her first appearance in a dozen years and second overall. She expressed doubts that the Marshal should have slain Jones already and whether his bravado masked insecurity. When the UN Secretary announced the world's rejection of the Marshal's terms of surrender via satellite television broadcast, the furious fascist admitted as much. The overall resistance was not a concern so much as the rival in their midst. I had to send my personal guard after him, because too many of our warriors are still loyal to Jones' mystique. You know the man, Belgius. You recognize his charisma. Indeed, she feared her own betrayal of the Martian people would eventually be uncovered by the sleuth from outer space, taking on the Marshal and encouraging his coup as a means of protecting herself, even if it meant worlds at war. The Martian strike was swift and unprecedented. They had somehow managed to accumulate hundreds if not thousands of interstellar attack craft with invisibility, allowing them to ambush the Hawks Thanagarian star cruiser, the JLA satellite, and numerous key cities around the world simultaneously. Terrestrial weapons were useless, and the League's base was left shattered. Challenger and Golden Battle Armor boarded the remains in search of survivors. There were, in fact, no casualties. And though the robotic challenger battered Aquaman, he was taken out by a single wall smasher arrow. Well, I'm sorry. He treats Aquaman like a chump. He, he picks Aquaman up, throws him against the wall, and then he gets taken out by a single arrow from Green Arrow. <laughs> what is up with that? Insanely powerful strength can, you know, lift a building or lift a, lift a truck without any problem at all. All this stuff and an arrow took the guy out? One arrow to the back? Now, I'm kind of surprised there's still air inside the space station after it got broken apart earlier, but whatever. Firestorm still distrusted the Manhunter and took out a trio of actual Martian invaders while searching for him. Finding Jones donning a spacesuit, the nuclear man assumed the alien Atlas was abandoning his allies. Silently swatting the nuisance aside, the Manhunter climbed into a League spacecraft, 
fired upon an exterior wall and flew off. Firestorm was left to fend for himself in the ensuing explosive decompression. War of the Worlds 1984, Part 2, Bitter Ashes, was by Jerry Conway, Alan Kupperberg, and Paul Blow Marcos. Going back to his underappreciated Blue Devil run, Alan's been my favorite cup brother and a welcome relief from Tuska. It's still jarring how completely Challenger was redesigned from one issue to the next, but I'd assume the second pass was closer to the desired vision. Maybe the Marshal had a point about needing to take over. Since the last time we were on Mars 2, his people were still living in tents, waving swords, and now they have an entire armada? As for Jones's pronounced charisma, I wish that had been present enough in any of his solo series to have kept any of them going for longer than a few years. I do like this story, especially its rare care for Mars 2 continuity, but it needed more room to actually demonstrate the Martians as the threat they're spoken as. Plus, all those martial monologues undermine the attempt to create any doubt in the reader's mind about the Manhunter's loyalties. By the way, the UN Secretary technically should be the Secretary General, who in 1984 was Javier Perez de Cuillar. Although perhaps they got confused and thought he was his eventual successor, Kofi Annan. Uh, I got I got to talk about the art real quick. First of all, obviously it's a it's a it's a it's a big relief after the George Tusk issues. And for me personally, Alan Kupperberg and Pablo Marcos is a great combination. I really enjoy them. Alan Kupperberg drew a number of Blue Devil issues. Well, uh, after Paris Collins left Blue Devil, Alan Kupperberg eventually became the full-time artist. So I, I, I was born and bred here, you know, on Alan Kupperberg artwork. And then Pablo Marcos inked the very first issue of Blue Devil, which was, as we said, done by Paris Collins. So it's almost like a good blending of, of Blue Devil worldness in this issue. So it just made, it made my heart sore. It was a good transition out of Tusca, too, because Kupperberg has these kind of big, thick, blocky characters. So it, even though it, was a, it seemed like a much uh, a prettier uh, version of Tusca to some degree, it, didn't, it wasn't as, as shocking a change as it would have been if, say, Chuck Patton had come back. I like that as well. Justice League of America number 230 had a cover date of September 1984, on-sale date of June 7th, 1984. The cover was once again by Chuck Patton and Dick Giordano. I think it is a contender for one of the best Martian Manor covers of all time, and I think one of the best Justice League covers. The story was called The Concluding Chapter, War of the Worlds 1984, Part 3, Blessed is the Peacemaker, by Jerry Conway and Alan Kupperberg, this time working on his own. The breathable air was sucked out of the environment within the JLA satellite. I do like, uh, I, gotta, I gotta mention, and looking at the first page, like, I love how everyone's being sucked out through the atmosphere. And there's a giant photo of Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern getting bapped around in the wind as if to say, ha ha, we're not there. They did something kind of similar too. I think Mark Wade did it after Judgment Day, which again, we get to bring up the Overmaster and his cadre. But yeah, after Judgment Day, when the, the, you had the schism where they decided to spin off like two different Justice League teams. You had the Task Force, you had Extreme Justice. You Extreme! Extreme! And one of the ways that they, they showed the schism was by having a picture very similar to that. And it's cracked. Uh, and the Marsh Manor sees it and he kind of tossed it off the side. It's like, oh man, those days are gone. <laughs> yeah, they were. Beljose convinced the Marshal to have his warships destroy the space vessel that caused the explosive decompression aboard the satellite before it could get too close, and the Martian Manhunter could be positively identified to prevent his potential martyrdom. Hunter Commander Jin overheard their conversation while eavesdropping aboard the command ship, The Vengeance, but could only look on in horror as her former lover seemingly died a second time before her eyes. Well, so, it, he also managed to get by 20 other Martian ships without a scratch. The Hawk's Thanagarian Star Cruiser had been completely obliterated by laser fire, leaving no trace. The chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet, Konstantin Chernenko, swayed President of the United States Ronald Reagan to deploy their combined nuclear capabilities against the Martian Armada. Nine key international military bases had already been leveled by the invaders. All was lost. Well, about that. As demonstrated by John Jones before his departure, the League had specialized spacesuits aboard the satellite that allowed the heroes to use their powers while protected from the ravages of space. The League ambushed Martian troops that explored the disabled satellite. You know, I just, I love the way they did the spacesuits. It cracks me up. It's just, they're bizarre and very specific. Hers has got the fishnet, but then Zatanna's is just clear. You know, an elongated man apparently just has a helmet. Hawkgirl and Hawkman had maneuvered their ship's warp drive to evade fire and retaliate. Jin wielded her credentials and a stun setting on her pistol to take out three members of the soldiers of the Red Brotherhood. Stealing a scout craft, she found that John Jones had once again been miraculously thrown clear of his ship before its destruction. When roused, the sleuth from outer space was relieved to learn that the full attack upon Earth had not yet begun, and that there was yet time to stop the marshal. Jin still believed in her leader and their mission, drawing her pistol on Jean, who despite no outward resistance, insisted that she would have to kill him. Tearfully, Jin let go of her quest for Martian glory, as well as the grip on her laser. Well, I, I take it the other side, is that she pulls the gun on him and he says, you know, basically gives her a choice. The only options you have are let me go or kill me. And it's like, I'm sitting there looking at him like, 
No, just shoot him in the friggin' knee. Blam! <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going now? You know. <laughs> just as the Hawks prepared for their final stand, the Marshal placed his order. This day, we will write and fire on the pages of Martian history. Technician, open a channel to the entire fleet. I wish to speak to all my warriors. This was the moment the manhunt from Mars, having made his way aboard the Vengeance, had been waiting for. The challenge of a duel before the entire Martian race, who could already plainly see that Jean Jones had not fled like a coward, as the commander had claimed. Bell whispered, The eyes of the fleet are upon you, my leader. Kill him now. Prove him a weakling. And you are untouchable. The marshal literally ripped off his shirt and assailed the man he'd framed as a traitor. Despite his genetic enhancements, the marshal struggled against his foe and used an invisibility technique outlawed for millennium in duels of honor. Bell insisted, What matter? The marshal is above the law. After more blows were traded, the marshal tried to two-handed choke Jones to death. But the alien analyst picked him up by the midsection and smashed the militant headfirst into equipment, leaving the marshal out cold. Belgeuse defied this result, grabbing a pistol from a soldier with the intent to kill Jones herself. However, Firestorm had recovered from his last brush with Martian muscle and pursued the Manhunter, only to use his powers to save Jean from Bell's blast. Firestorm, there's, there's a couple things I want to mention on his page, where he comes up out of the wreckage and, and decides to go avenge the Justice League. The first thing is, you see the wreck, and a screw drops down. There's a very purposeful panel of this one screw dropping down. And I gotta wonder if there's a, somebody's got a screw loose joke in there somewhere that we weren't quite <laughs> getting, because I really feel like there's something there. It's It's... There's something there. I can't place it. But I love seeing Professor Stein. You don't see him enough in these JLA issues, so that was very exciting for me. And then the revelation that apparently Firestorm can breathe in space that I don't remember at all. Because, you know, I, I just reviewed Green Lantern Circle of Fire, and he sure needed uh, oxygen there. So I, I'd have to go back and look if there's any other instances of Firestorm breathing in space, but I don't recall any. Jones ordered the Armada back to Mars, too. The Soviets and the U.S. stepped back from probable nuclear winter. All seemed to be right, except the fleet would be leaving short one Martian marvel. As Aquaman observed, his people don't want him. His presence would be a constant reminder of their humiliation. Jean showed them that they'd sold their hearts to a madman and a coward. The marshal betrayed their faith in him. And John Jones forced them to face reality. And that's something a nation can never forget. While not as embarrassing as to be defeated by the slightest hint of a flammable, the Martians proved pushovers when faced with non-powered heroines in fetish gear, kicking them really hard in weightless space. I still like the story, and I love the Pat and Giordano covers, but the illogic and mere lip service paid to stakes make it fold before the slightest critical analysis. None of this material makes it into post-crisis continuity, so my buzz over the observance for Bronze Age Martian history is, is further harshed by none of this having happened in canon going further than a year out. Well, it's not like this thing's getting collected in a trade paperback, so... It sh totally should be. It totally should be. I know that I've mocked it, but you have to understand, it's like a B-movie. You know, when you think about it, even Star Wars, which this obviously parallels, is something of a B-movie, you enjoy pointing out its problems and its plot holes, but you also enjoy watching the plot holes as they unfold. You enjoy the wackiness, you enjoy... You know, there's still enough on the screen, on the page, to keep your attention. <laughs> right, I didn't realize what chumps the Martians were until you started talking about it. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of no. sense. Well, the story really needed a fourth chapter, because everything got wrapped up a little too quickly and easily in this chapter. No, I, th I think fourth would have been too much. I think three was just right. But right. I agree, the, the, the chumpishness of the Martians is pretty evident once you notice it. <laughs> There's so many things I love about the story, and it's still so much fun. I love the pie symbol on the Marsh Man and her spaceship. I, I really do love the art. Even the Tuska issues are pretty neat, but the, the, the Kupperberg issues, they're just, I don't know, it's just, it, it, it's, it's polished. It's, it's, the, the figures have great weight to them. I love the, the political guest appearances. You know, these guys are very, intense-looking uh, uh, characters. There's just there's a lot to love about the series. It's just there's also plenty to make fun of. I will say that I think Kupperberg's art was better in Part 2 when he had Pablo Marcos as an inker. In mm -hmm. Part 3, he's doing his own work. And I feel like it's just... I don't know, Pablo's just got a really clean line. And uh, Alan, while he's a very, very good penciler and, and does a great page layout, I'm not sure he's the best inker. Well, and you got that two-page spread that Marcos inked, too, with the spaceship that has all that fine detail. That's very winning. You know, that, that was part of that build-up. You see the spaceship. It's so big. It's so impressive that you think it's going to really do some serious damage. And that's why it's kind of a drag in the last chapter where you never really get to see it do the kind of damage it seems like it's capable of. Speaking of spaceships, i got to mention, Marsh, I, I mentioned it in my recap, but the Martian Manhunter little rocket sh sled he's in from <laughs> Justice, this is Justice League America on the side. 
that looks like a superpowers toy just that didn't get finished. I mean, that, I that's that. awesome. I wish I had that. They're great-looking books. As a Martian Manhunter fan, this is one of the only times that they've taken years of continuity and put it into one story, where with most Martian Manhunter stories, it doesn't appear that anybody's actually read a Martian Manhunter story before they wrote one. Um, so it's, it's, it's a wonderful credit to Jerry Conway took that effort. It's a great uh, visual uh, story arc. And they blew up the Justice League satellite. After this, you go right into the annual where they blow up the Justice League, and you have the start of the Detroit era. Everything begins to change at that point, because about halfway through the Detroit era, all of a sudden, Grim and Gritty gets really big, and they turn the Detroit team Grim and Gritty, and they kill them all off in a wonderful story arc, a great story arc. It all really begins here, because the book was clearly running out of steam by my reckoning by this point, and you needed to have this big explosive finale for the satellite era because it just wasn't working anymore. It just didn't have traction, and they just gotten Chuck Patton, who's a great penciler, who I think could have taken that book to, to wonderful heights if given the opportunity. Unfortunately, he then began to start drawing Vibe and Gypsy and a lot, and that probably kind of hurt him a little bit. There's a lot to this story. There's a lot to recommend about this story. And if you put it together with the first uh, Justice League annual, it really is an epic. It's just it stops a little bit short here because the Martian threat isn't what it should be, and a lot of the permanent changes don't occur until the annual. But this reading material is fairly essential. I find sometimes you go into things with diminished expectations and you can derive more pleasure from them. So if you build it up, build it up, build it up, and then you go in there and you start noticing the flaws yourself, it's going to hurt your enjoyment. Go in there expecting a B-movie and you'll enjoy an excellent B-movie. <laughs> well, I think you're right about it being essential reading for um, this these, these three issues combined with annual number two is, is essential reading for Aquaman and Martian Manhunter fans. It really is. I don't know if it's essential reading for Firestorm fans, but certainly it doesn't hurt anything you know, for Firestorm fans to read it as well. I'd say it is because it's a, kind of a last shining moment for Firestorm and the team. And a, it's sort of like what I was just talking about with the Martian Manhunter. A lot of people probably got exposed to Firestorm because of the Justice League. You don't really know that he would have gotten his own solo series if it wasn't for the Justice League. And you don't know if he would have been able to sustain it without their guest appearances and without that connection. And this is where he severs ties with the team. So it's a pretty important Firestorm story as well. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it shows um, at um, Aquaman take a big old crap on Firestorm's you know happiness. So it's true. <laughs> so, now the biggest thing missing from this three-parter, and I, I, you guys, you got to back me up here, is the hair pulling, cat scratching slap fight between Jen and Bell Juice. <laughs> I mean, I kept going. I was reading. I'm like, where? Where is that? Why did I miss it? I go back. I'm like, no, they don't fight. It makes no sense. And it's worth pointing out that neither of those characters have ever appeared anywhere ever again. Well, they're both a couple of unpleasant women. Actually, Belle Judds is pretty awesome. If you read her first appearance, she's got the whole 60s hottie thing going on where she's full-framed. She's got the cat eyes. She's got the lavender hair. She's seducing the Martian Manhunter. She's trying her best to mislead Superman. Superman has to put her in a chokehold over the course of that story. Um, so she's actually pretty awesome. Uh, if you've read that story, which again, it gets referenced. There's a reference to an Martian Manhunter story in a comic book. Just that alone makes it a touchstone for Martian Manhunter fans because again, somebody had read a story before writing one. Belle Juz is pretty awesome. I'd love to see more stuff done with her. I've actually gotten a really nice commission of her by Brian Denham uh, last year, but I don't think anybody in the comics is going to use her anytime soon. But this does mark the end of the Satellite League, essentially, even though it officially happens in you know the, the annual, and then there's the follow-up two issues here, by, or issue or two by Busick. This really is the grand, the grand finale, though, for the, for the Satellite era. Well, I get to read your feedback in a segment called Justice Log. It was my turn to put together the social media for this episode, and I had a heck of a time because we weren't using hashtags back then. Ultimately, the easiest route was to work backwards from JLMA 2016 forward to the final 2019 edition. And boy, those were some swell get-togethers. Wouldn't it be neat if we had another JLMA someday? Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. Just when you thought it was safe to hear a podcast promo. Comic books 
JL May do 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 Brave and the Bold do 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 Comic books do 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 JL May JL May do 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 Brave and the Bold do 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 Comic books do 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 JL May the annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back. And we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlook Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JLMay do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 Mephisto. Hey, that it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. Okay, folks, we're back from break. All right, now this is the part, as we do every episode, where we thank everyone who shared the show on their social media, either Facebook or Twitter. It's a long list of names. Surprise. However, these folks showed their support and helped promote the show. So for me, it's really, really important because, you know, like, I'll pick someone out of the random. Uh, Clinton Robinson, it's the only time he's going to be mentioned on the show. But you know what? He helped promote the podcast, and I appreciate that. So... Here is a list of everyone who helped promote the last episode of the show by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. Now, you could be on this list next month. All you got to do is hit share on Facebook or retweet on Twitter. And this time, we've got nearly 70 people to thank. So our thanks go out to Aaron Moss, who added, follow the Blackest Night storyline over in Rolled Spine Podcast. Adriano, the Bat Pod, Between the Pages blog, the blog of Oa, the brightest day. Chris at Bad Books for Beginners. Clinton Robinson and his Comics and Comics podcast and Fan Films Fridays podcast. Who added, Jail May coverage keeps on rolling along. Cosmic DM, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, the Dr. DC podcast. Who added, more Blackest Night goodness from the good folks over at the Idle Head of Diabolu. Ed Moore Jr., Eugene R. Hendricks, voice actor, home studio. Fan Holes podcast, Firestorm fan, G.I. Joe headcast, Green Lantern HG, I'll Be the Light in the Dark. Guillermo Perano, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, Hicks But Look for Flanger in the Refugee Camps, Jerry Whitworth, Just Julio Raul, Christados, The Lantern Cast, who added, Oh damn, y'all are in for it now. Diablo Frank has joined the JL May fray with The Idle Head of Diablo, covering more Blackest Night material for the 10th anniversary. So stick your brains under the racing torrent of knowledge about to consume every inch of your sanity. Laurel, Lily Wanang, or Lee Wanang, Lee Wanag, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Illustrator, Designer, Creator Soul, Maru Carithoran, The Malliard Report, Matthew Chad, Max Romero, Nerdfix Strangers, The Phil Factor, Professor Frenzy, Rad Adventures, Randy Andrews, Randy Caldwell, who added, I love Diablo Frank's reading of Black Hand's Black Lantern Oath, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Richard Field, Ross Machad, Sage, Sean Ross in the Secret Wars and Beyond podcast. Seth Comic. Siskoid. Slangward Scott. Talk Nerdy to Me. Tim Price and his Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Warlord World. Willie Yarbrough. Xenozoic Xenophile. And Zachary at It's Mr. Zachary. Finally, a comment on the blog credited to Martian Manhunter said, Excuse me, I love this page. Is one of the few Martian pages still alive. Oof. All right. Well, my thanks to all of you for your support of this podcast. Your feedback. Seriously, it's such a critical part of the show. You're absolutely fantastic because I love the rapport we all have. I love our community. So anyway, if I've forgotten or missed anyone this episode, I am terribly sorry. Please let me know, and I will include you in the next episode. And keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Our website is firewaterpodcast.com. Leave your comments on the show post there, or head over to Facebook or on Twitter. And my thanks to you, the listeners, for such a great collection of feedback. Thank you for deciding to join me. I love these Justice League comics so much, and uh, I'm hoping we're going to have some fun with the podcast. Alright, folks, well, I think that's going to do it. Thank you so much for listening. I guess we'll sign off with this is Detroit Potlocket Podcast!